this morning as we are um, preparing just around the corner from uh, Thanksgiving this week, but then beyond that into our Christmas season, we are beginning a Christmas series that, we, that I've titled The Name Above All Names. And we will look through scriptures and we will see what the Bible declares to be true about Jesus Christ. And this morning we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1. I have always had an active imagination. And I say that because present tense, it's true of me now as much as any point in my life. I, I love stories. I love uh, elaborate stories. I, I love especially fantasy stories and novels. And I, I love stories about dragons and knights and, and all kinds of different things. And I have always had that, that desire and that hunger and that love for, for fiction stories. And I can get wrapped up in stories. I've shared that with you all before. That active imagination, especially when I was a child, uh, led to some problems in my life. I don't know if I've shared this from the stage, but I think I've shared it with a few folks here in the church. There was a point in my life, especially when I was, when I was young, um, my bedroom was at one end of the house, and the kitchen was at the other end of the house. And in the kitchen was one of those 90s microwaves, right, with the big green uh, digital display, and it was bright, and it filled the kitchen. And at night, when the lights were turned off through the house, the only light that was left on was that eerie green light that was emanating from the digital display of the microwave. And the kitchen just took on this really uncomfortable, eerie kind of feel. And I don't know what it was that led to it, but I just became convinced that at night, there was this dark green-eyed, malicious dragon that lived in the kitchen. And if I got out of my bed or if I came out of my room, and the hallway was about half, or the bathroom was about halfway between the kitchen and me, if I made any attempt to move that direction, I was going to be consumed by this malicious, evil dragon that lived on the other end of my house. And that fear just paralyzed me. It left me in bed at night. And if I ever had to go to the bathroom, I just held it. I just waited until there was light other than that eerie, malicious glow that awaited me on the other end of the house. And let's be real honest, for a period of time, I didn't feel safe in my own home. Fear paralyzes us. And whether our fears are irrational, like there being some dark green-eyed dragon that lives in your home, or they're very rational that says, if I don't take the right precautions, I will get a disease that will end my life or destroy my family. Fear has the ability to leave us paralyzed, and it can even spiritually prevent us from experiencing the fullness of life in the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we allow the fears of the world, the fears of the future, the fears of our finances, the fears of life in and of itself to overwhelm us, we are paralyzed and incapable then of experiencing the freedom of life in Jesus Christ. What we need then as we face our fears is the constant reminder that we are not alone. We need the reminder that there is one who is with us, and that one who is with us is bigger than all of our fears. We need the reminder that God is with us. Look with me, if you will, in Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. 
And we'll read down through verse 25 together this morning. Matthew writes, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Would you pray with me as we begin? Father, I thank you that you are a God who does not abandon us in this world. You are not a God who is foreign. You are not a God who is far off. Though you are the God who is sovereign over all of the universe, who dwells in the highest of the holiest places, you are nevertheless the God who dwells among your people with the the contrite and lowly of heart, with the repentant, with the needy. You draw near to us, and there is no greater evidence of that than in your Son, Jesus Christ. So I pray as we dig into your word this morning that by your grace and your mercy, Holy Spirit, you would begin to work in our hearts and in our lives. I pray and ask that your blessing would be upon me as I speak, that I would proclaim only what is true, and that your truth would pierce our hearts convict our spirits, and guide us to live lives that bring you glory and are for the good of those that are around us. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. As we travel throughout Scripture, we'll spend time in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament, examining different places where Jesus is given a name, where Scripture says Jesus or this child, this one will be called something. This morning, we're focusing on the fact that in both Isaiah, we'll look at that in a little bit, but here specifically in Matthew, Jesus is called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, granted, understand it was never a nickname. He wasn't running around Nazareth or Jerusalem or anywhere else with everybody calling him Emmanuel. But instead, this is a declaration of an identity that is true of Jesus Christ that is deeper than what a surface-level relationship or a surface-level reading of Scripture would declare. As we work our way through this series, the big goal, if you will, is for us to come to understand more about this person of Jesus Christ. We will learn what His names reveal about His nature. One of the most important truths that we need to learn as we are studying through Scripture what the Scripture teaches us about Christ about Jesus is this truth that Jesus was more than merely human. And that is a truth that is anchored across, or is, is spread across Scripture, but it's anchored here in these verses as these verses testify to the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Now, I just want to make clear that despite the patterns of certain traditions and faith traditions that teach the Bible and agree with many things that we might declare, the purpose of the virgin birth is not to make much of Mary. 
The purpose of the virgin birth is not to elevate Mary to some deific position. The purpose of the virgin birth instead, Matthew points out in verse 22 and 23, all of this, Mary's current pregnancy, Joseph's command, if you will, the, the, the obedience that is expected of him, all of the details that are coming together, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. The virgin gives birth only to reveal and make much of the child that is born. This child who is God with us. Everything that takes place here is to make much of this Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. So let's break that idea down, God with us. It is a declaration that this baby that is born is God. What Scripture makes clear is that Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man in one person, and he will be forever. If you're taking notes, I encourage you to write that down. That what Scripture teaches is that Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man in one person and will be so for all of eternity. There has not been some divine reversal but as we will see, Jesus was resurrected as a man and now exists incarnate. That term is what we talk about, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. From the days that Jesus walked the earth, there were people who perceived him as merely a man. There's the incident in Matthew 13 when he is teaching and preaching and those that are around him who knew his family look around at one another and they ask this question, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? It's very simple, and it was simple for the people who interacted with Jesus in his day to assume that he was only merely a man blessed with these miraculous prophetic gifts that Elijah had displayed at different points, that other prophets had displayed. But what Scripture makes clear and what Jesus makes clear in his ministry is that he was far more than just another prophet. He claimed to be God. There are some that want to say that Jesus never taught that he was God. But that isn't true. He claimed to be, he claimed God is his father. John 19, verse 7. We have a law, and according to that law, Jesus ought to die because he made himself the son of God. They're ready to, they're ready to kill him then and there for blasphemy, for declaring himself to be equal with God, the son of God. Beyond that, in John, verse eight, or John chapter 8, he actually equates himself to God, applying the divine nature to himself and claiming the divine name. He says, before Abraham was, I am. Now that's important, and that might not sound all that important, but what we understand in that is that Jesus, the grammar matters. Jesus could have said, before Abraham was, I was. But he doesn't say that. He says, before Abraham was, I am. Because I am was the divine name used for God throughout the Old Testament. Yahweh means I am. And so Jesus calls himself 
by God's own name. At the end of his life, after his resurrection, he allows his disciple Thomas to worship him. After he invites Thomas to test his doubts, Thomas gets such a bad rap. We call him Doubting Thomas, and we throw shame on his name. But the truth of the matter is, ladies and gentlemen, they weren't idiots. They knew people didn't come back to to life after being killed and crucified. So Thomas said, I'm not going to believe it until I can prove it. And Jesus shows up and doesn't condemn him for his doubts, but actually encourages and invites him to test those doubts and invites him to draw near and touch him and feel him and see and prove that this is Christ. And in that moment, Thomas then cries out, my Lord and my God. And Jesus doesn't rebuke him or stop him from that, but accepts his worship. But he didn't merely make direct claims that he was God. There were indirect claims based in his life that prove him to be God or prove his assumption that he was God and Scripture's teaching that he was God. He claimed to be able to forgive sin. He claimed to be the giver of life. I came that they may have life and have it more abundantly. He claimed that one day he will be the one who sits in judgment over all of the earth. What the Old Testament teaches is the position that only God belongs in. In addition, the rest of the New Testament authors attribute deity to Jesus Christ. Paul says in Philippians that Jesus was equal with God. Jesus says in Philippians chapter 2, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Paul also says that Jesus was indwelled with the fullness of God. Colossians chapter 1. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And the author of Hebrews is the one who ultimately proclaims that Jesus is more important and bigger and better and different than every other prophet or angel that had ever come before. As he says in, first, in the very opening of the book of Hebrews, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom God appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. He's bigger, he's better than anything and anyone that had ever gone before. This baby born in Bethlehem was not just another human child. He was and is God in the flesh, is what the Bible makes very clear. Why is that important? Why should that affect you and me? Ultimately, it teaches us this, that what Jesus came to do, the life that he lived sinlessly, the death that he died substitutionally for us, all of that was bigger than any man could have ever done on his own. Your salvation and mine, is only possible if God does it. And so when we live our lives 
trying to do what only God can do. We're like that old Greek mythological character who's constantly trying to push the rock uphill. Doomed to die, doomed to despair, doomed to desperation. The truth of the matter is, the world that we live in is broken. And the lives that we experience are broken lives. And every single person in all of the world is attempting to deal with our brokenness in some way or another. And we look to many different things to try to fix our brokenness. Maybe it's a pursuit of power. If I can get the right amount of claim, if I can get the right amount of success in my job or politics or whatever else, if I can be on the right side of whoever's in control of our nation, then that gives me a sense of control and I don't really have to be afraid. And if I get enough money and I accumulate for myself enough of a a nest egg, then no matter what it is that comes into my life, I have the ability to deal with it because I've got the money. Some of us run from it and drown it out with drugs and alcohol and pornography and sex and all of these different things as attempts to drown out our brokenness and deal with it on our own. But the fact that Jesus is God with us means that God is the only one who can fix that brokenness. Jesus had to be God because the task that was set before him was too big for anyone but God to fix. He was God. But he was also fully man. The testimony of Scripture is that there are two simultaneously equal truths. He was 100% God and 100% human. How does 100% plus 100% equal 100%? I don't know. It's a mystery that belongs to God. But he was not 50% God and 50% human, or 80% human and 20% God. He was one person who shared two natures, a godly nature and a human nature. He was God in the flesh. And all the way back in the earliest generations of Christianity, people have struggled with this reality that he was fully God and fully man. And there was a school of thought called docetism. You don't have to write that down. I don't even know that I pronounced it correctly. But here's what they believed, that Jesus only appeared to be human. There was one sect that even taught that Jesus never, he actually was fully, completely divine with no humanity whatsoever, and he only appeared to be walking. It was like he was some kind of first century, you know, 3D projection, right? That he wasn't really touching the ground, but he was floating, and he was deceiving everybody by acting like he was walking. That he was so fully God that there was no part of him whatsoever that was human. But Scripture clearly teaches something different than that. First off, right here in this passage of Scripture, we find out that we make much of the virgin birth. Newsflash, his birth was completely normal. Mary had him just like every single mother in this room has ever had a child. She went through the same pain the same problems, the same everything that every other woman throughout humanity has ever gone through in order to bring a life into this world. She was real pregnant at this point. 
And Joseph and the rest of the world understand how babies get made, which is why Joseph resolves in his heart to divorce her quietly because Joseph knows she's got a bun in the oven and I ain't the daddy. But being a man of honor, he's not going to drag her in front of the city and the judges and have her executed. He's going to do it quietly until an angel steps in and says, the growth of this child is natural. The birth of this child is natural. The conception of this child is supernatural. This child is here as a work of the Holy Spirit. But from that point forward, Jesus' life was natural. He grew, Luke chapter 2. He increased in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. As an adult, he became tired. John chapter 4, verse 6. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. He became hungry and thirsty. Matthew chapter 4, verse 2. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. No wonder. He was raised to new life with a real body. Luke chapter 24. Thomas wasn't the only disciple who doubted. The rest of them did as well. Jesus asked them, why is it that you doubt? And he then invited them to touch him. He invited them to test him. He asked for a piece of broiled fish that he could eat it in front of them so they would realize he was a real person with a digestive system. He was raised with a real body. You can see throughout Scripture, he also had a human mind. He had a human soul. He had emotions as humans. He was fully God and fully human. Why does it matter that he was fully human? Did he have to be fully human? And the answer is emphatically yes. There's a theological phrase, you can write this down, that helps us understand why Jesus had to be fully human. And it says this, only what is assumed by Jesus is redeemed by Jesus. Only what is assumed is redeemed. If you're taking notes and you can write these down and work through them, I've got a whole big thing that you can read and, and look on your own, but seven reasons why the incarnation, why Jesus being fully human really mattered, okay? First, Jesus had to be human to be our substitute and obey in our place. It doesn't matter. God is already sinless. We aren't. So Jesus' obedience, it's not just his death, his substitutionary death that stands in our place, it's his record of righteousness that is given to us as well. Why do I have hope that when I lie or when I lust or when I fail, that there is hope in that in, in, in Jesus Christ? Because for every single time that I lie or lust or I sin or I fail, there is a time when Jesus didn't and it's his record that will stand for me in the end. Jesus had to be fully human to be obedient as our substitute. Second, Jesus had to be human to be an acceptable sacrifice for man because it was man who sinned and not God. Third, he had to be human that he might become our mediator. 
Jesus now stands in the place where he is God and man fully together so that he can represent man to God and represent God to man. He is the only one who has the unique place to stand in the middle between humanity on this side and God on this side. He's the only one who can bridge that gap. He also had to be human, kind of in line with the first one, to be our example and our pattern of life. The life that he lives is one that we are to emulate. Number next. Five. There we go. He had to be fully human that he might fulfill God's original purpose that man rule over creation as the perfect image bearer of God. From the very beginning of the book of Genesis to what we find to be true at the end of the book in Revelation is that it has always been God's intention that a man who is the perfect reflection of him and his character sit on the throne as his representative on earth. It was supposed to be Adam, and through Adam, his descendants, but we failed. It will be Jesus who reigns over all things for all eternity as the perfect image bearer of God. The first Adam failed, but Paul tells us that the second Adam, Jesus Christ, succeeded. Number six, he had to be raised fully human that he might be the firstborn among the dead and the pattern for our eternal resurrected bodies. Do you realize that the very hope that you and I have about the fact that one day we will live in eternity in a perfected state such that we'll be no longer vulnerable to disease, broken bones, or anything like that, but we will exist in a glorified physical body for all of eternity, the down payment of that promise is the fact that our bodies will be like His body, glorified for all of eternity. Last, because Jesus was really a man. He experienced trials, temptations, and struggles just like us. And as such, he's able to sympathize with us. And the author of Hebrews says that though he was tempted and tested, he remained without sin, which is how he stands with us and sympathizes with us, and now serves as our great high priest. You see, the deity of Jesus Christ reveals our need for God to fix our problems. The humanity of Jesus Christ exposes the love of God that He is willing to do so. The fact that Jesus Christ, as Paul says, did not cling to His deity, but instead emptied himself by taking on. How you empty yourself by adding something to you, that's another mystery that I don't understand. But he emptied himself by taking on the form of humanity that he might rescue and redeem us. The humanity of Christ displays his love for us and his willingness to meet all of these needs and rescue and redeem us of our sins. He took upon us not only our weaknesses, he took upon himself our sin and the eternal judgment and damnation that we deserve for it. He was willing to take on flesh that he might be our substitute to forgive us of our sins and give us his righteousness in return. That we might be rescued, redeemed, but ultimately adopted. 
See, Jesus is not just God. He's not just us. He's God with us. Brothers and sisters, so often I feel that the biggest struggle that so many Christians have is remember that sermon that I said about swing away? And we check up so soon. We talk about the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. We talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But we never actually finish with the fact that Jesus didn't merely die to take away your sins. Jesus didn't merely die to give you a record of righteousness. Jesus died so that you might be adopted into the family of God. And when we live lives characterized by being dominated by our fear, it's because we're forgetting the gospel. We're forgetting the fullness of the gospel. We're forgetting the promise of the gospel, that the one who is with us is bigger than whatever it is that's in front of us. Matthew says that all of this took place, that Jesus might fill full the Old Testament prophecy that the, there would be a sign, and that sign would be a child that would be born, and that child would be called Emmanuel, God with us. You can write in the margin of your Bible here in this passage of Scripture, Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7 is where we find that initial promise. And here's the historical situation. We've just come out of the minor prophets, if you've been around, so you're kind of familiar with what's going on, hopefully. But there was a point in time when before Israel was destroyed by Assyria, before Judah was destroyed by Babylon, if you'll remember, the, the nation was split into two after the reign of Solomon. His son was evil and wicked, and the people rebelled, and the nation split. Before God's judgment fully came, there was a point when the northern kingdom of Israel aligned themselves with the nation of Syria, and they got ready to wage war on Judah. So now you've got an aggressive northern neighbor backed by a world superpower. How do you think Judah felt? Alone, afraid, and terrified. And so God sends Isaiah to the king and says, ask for a sign. Make it as high as the heavens or as low as the earth. Whatever you want, ask for a sign. And the king doesn't want to test God. He says, I'm not going to do it. God said, fine, I'll give you a sign. The virgin will conceive, and a child will be born, and that child will be called Emmanuel. Why? Because you need the reminder, I am with you. How does that little bullied kid feel when he's abandoned and alone on the playground? But how does that feeling transform when he realizes that the biggest, baddest kid on the playground now has his back? How does the basketball team feel when they walk out on the court and everybody on the other side of the, team, of the, other side of the court is a head and shoulders above them, but then they remember that the best kid who plays the game is on their team? How does it feel when that awkward little girl knows that the coolest kid in school is her best friend? How does it feel when we know that no matter what it is out there, the one who is right here can wipe it out of the universe? What then do we have to fear? 
because Matthew begins his gospel with the promise that this Jesus is God with us. He ends his gospel with a promise from Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 28. When he says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. Yes, Christ ascended to the throne of the universe. You go back just a few verses before I read here in Matthew chapter 28. He promises all authority up there and down here in heaven and on earth. All of that belongs to Jesus Christ. There is no entity. There is no world power. There is no nation. There is no bomb bigger than Jesus. He alone is ruler of the universe. And he doesn't promise to be for his people. He doesn't promise to be behind his people. He promises to be with you. Side by side. Sympathizing with you. Celebrating your victories. Giving grace in your failures. What we need is a reminder that Jesus Christ is God with us. And what we need when we are faced with that fear that would paralyze us from living a life, that fear that grips our hearts when we think about persecution that may come against the church, that fear that silences us when we have that person across the table and we're afraid to start the difficult conversation that talks about the gospel and invites them to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, that difficult conversation of the person with all of their doubts and all of their fears and all of their anything else that they are, they are bringing against your faith in Jesus Christ, all of those things that leads you to be paralyzed from living a life of freedom is ultimately anchored and rooted in the fact that we have failed to believe the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ that says He is with me. And if I will just believe in Him right now, I don't have to be David with five smooth stones. Jesus will be David for me. I don't have to worry about Goliath because Jesus will deal with him for me. All I have to do is trust in him. I don't know if it was because I watched Godzilla or King Kong or whatever else. But the way I ultimately embrace or dealt with my fear of that eerie, dark, green-eyed dragon that was waiting to eat me if I ventured too close to the kitchen. As I invented in my mind a beautiful, white, purple-eyed dragon who lived in my closet. And just in case he wasn't big enough, there was a white and a gray giant gorillas that lived under my bed. And so I didn't have to worry about walking down the hall to go to the bathroom anymore. Because I knew that the ones who were with me were bigger and better than whatever was ahead of me. A life in Christ 
is a life with Christ. It's not a fearless life. It's a faith-filled life. And the way that we face down our fear is putting our faith in the one who is a man and knows that fear, but who is God and is bigger than that fear and who is with you. My question to you today is, are you with Christ? Has there ever been a time in your life when you've believed what Scripture says is true? Jesus is God in the flesh who came to deal with the biggest problem in your life, the problem that you cannot and will not ever deal with on your own, and that is your brokenness because of sin. Have you ever trusted in Christ alone to rescue you from your sin and redeem you and adopt you and to live life with you in a relationship in which He promises you peace and everlasting life? If not, my invitation is turn to Christ today. Turn from yourself. Maybe you have doubts. Thomas had doubts. The original disciples had doubts. I'd encourage you to just ask Jesus. A simple prayer, would you prove yourself to me? And then commit to continue to come over the next six weeks as we dig deeper into the identity of Jesus Christ as revealed by the names of Christ throughout Scripture. And see what the Lord does in your life. But maybe you're ready today and it's just as simple as crying out, God, would you forgive me? Would you free me from my fears and my failures? Would you change me? But if you're here and you're a child of God, when you go home today, something is going to grip your heart with fear. Have you been on the roads in Clarksville recently? This last week, I was the problem. There's problems all around. I'd urge you, remember, Jesus is with you. Believe in that. Turn to Him. And find in Him the freedom of life in and with Christ.